There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout... We will lay out the body of evidence that we have that talks about how the president's tweet on the wee hours of December 19th of Be There, Be Wild was a siren call um, Mm -hmm. to these folks. The marshalling of the mob. Tomorrow, the January 6th committee is expected to show us how Trump's inner circle coordinated with right-wing militia groups to put some muscle and violence behind their efforts to overturn the election. Also tonight, Steve Bannon is a total loser in court in his last-ditch effort to delay his contempt trial. No, Steve, there is no executive privilege for podcasters. Plus, a major announcement tonight from the White House on reproductive rights. But we begin tonight with the American white power movement, once relegated to fringe or extreme, but which has now taken center stage in American politics and which has declared war on democracy itself. Democracy is a threat to white supremacy and vice versa. And we're about to learn a lot more about the role such movements and groups had on the coordinated bid to agitate crowds into storming the Capitol on January 6th. Like Donald Trump himself, these far-right extremist groups are united in racism, sexism, and a thirst for violence. Also like Trump, they're a symptom of the collective freakout on the right over the two-term presidency of Barack Obama. The Oath Keepers officially launched in April 2009 in the wake of the country electing its first black president. Here's their leader, Elmer Stewart Rhodes, Yale Law School grad, an expert grifter. He apparently earned that eye patch by dropping his own gun back in 1993. He and fellow members have been charged with seditious conspiracy in the Capitol attack. The citizen militia group claims to be defending the U.S. Constitution, but it's actually one of the largest anti-government groups in the U.S. Back in 2014, Oath Keepers, among others, poured into Nevada in defense of rancher Cliven Bundy, who had defied the federal government by letting his cattle graze on federal land without paying the proper fees. Bundy led an armed standoff against federal agents in the town of Bunkerville, where the agents had arrived to enforce the law and confiscate the cattle. When the situation threatened to get violent, the government backed down and returned the cows to Bundy. The Oath Keepers capitalized on this victory, even though they reportedly fled the scene, angering other militia members. The group made headlines again in Ferguson, Missouri, when armed Oath Keepers held surveillance posts and roamed the streets during the unrest connected to the fatal shooting of Michael Brown by a white police officer. The Proud Boys emerged years later, founded in 2016, the year Donald Trump ran for president by the founder of Vice News, by the way, Gavin McInnes, sporting some pretty blatant racist views. Here is their most latest leader who took over from McInnes, Enrique Tarrio, counter-protesting during a gathering to commemorate the first anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. That's right. He's the guy for Derek Chauvin. He was also sent to jail for burning a Black Lives Matter flag that he ripped off a D.C. church. But what really put the Proud Boys on the map was when Donald Trump refused to condemn white supremacist groups during a presidential debate and instead issued an unambiguous call for the Proud Boys to be ready. Proud Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. The Proud Boys made it crystal clear they had heard the message. 
with Stand Back, Stand By becoming both a rallying cry and a logo for the extremist group. Committee members say these two groups led the assault on the Capitol, an eerie connection further solidified by video of a meeting between Tario and Rhodes in a Washington, D.C. garage just 24 hours before the Capitol attack. Both groups will have a starring role in tomorrow's January 6th hearings as federal prosecutors reveal more on their ties to Trump's inner orbit or even to Trump himself. The AP reports that after Oath Keeper stormed the Capitol, their leader called someone on the phone with an urgent message for Trump. This is based on what another extremist told investigators. New accusations also include an alleged Oath Keeper bringing explosives to D.C. on January 6th, along with allegations that a co-defendant kept a death list with the name of a Georgia election official on it. Tomorrow, we'll hear from a former Oath Keeper spokesman, Jason Van Tattenhove, who will appear as a witness. He's expected to speak about the group's propaganda efforts and radicalization over the years, including how Rhodes capitalized on conspiracy theories to build membership and to make the money roll in. Joining me now is John Wood, former January 6th senior investigator, who's now an independent candidate for U.S. Senate in Missouri. Sandy Bacon, journalist and documentary filmmaker. And Kathleen Ballou, associate professor of history at Northwestern University and author of Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. Thank you all for being here. Mr. Uh, John Wood, I want to start with you. Welcome to the show. You were an investigator on the committee. Give us a sense of what you expect them to do with the information they bring out about these violent groups? And do you expect them to attempt to connect those groups directly to Donald Trump or to his inner circle? Well, I think that's what people are going to be looking for is how much of a connection there is between these domestic violent extremist groups and Donald Trump and his supporters. I I don't want to raise expectations too much. I don't know that there will be uh, evidence of a direct coordination between them. But at the very least, I do expect that there's going to be evidence that Donald Trump either knew or should have known of the existence of these groups and that his actions could inflame the situation because there were these you know, radical supporters of her of his that could potentially turn violent. And, and Ms. Bacon, you were filming a documentary. So I know you've got some some video that you brought along with. Um, tell us what you saw. We're going to roll some of that as you talk uh, about what you saw. <laughs> you were near or with these groups, or yeah. at least some of them on the 6th. What did you see? Uh, this is uh, Roger Stone being escorted back to the Willard Hotel uh, with the uh, Oath Keepers, which was unusual because the Proud Boys have always been uh, his security for years. And I was really surprised to see them. They escorted him from the Willard and then back to after I filmed his speech. I filmed his speech at Freedom Plaza here. Okay, and what we're seeing here is the, the, them entering the Willow Hotel. We know that that was sort of a war yeah. room um, of sorts for um, yes. these, uh, the, I guess, the, the planning of the insurrection. Did you get a chance to talk to any of these Proud Boys slash Oath Keepers? Did they say anything to you of note? Well, I kind of know Enrique. This was a third rally that most people are not aware of. Uh, after Trump lost, my documentary deals with the two months after Trump lost. And uh, he... Uh, you know, right? Rudy said, just say we won. <laughs> so on November 14th, there was a rally called the Million Mega March. And, you know, thousands and thousands of people showed up with the Trump flags, insisting that the election had been stolen because they had been feeding them this big lie for at least a year, you know. So, and did you yeah, get so the there sense was that, that two rallies? Yeah. 
Go on. Well, did did you get the sense in talking to Enrique and when you speak to him that they believe themselves to be essentially an army for Trump, that they are Trump's army? Yeah, there's one uh, one part. uh, They kept going. uh, The the, the second rally was on December 12th. And as the uh, rallies continued, they became increasingly more Proud Boys and violent. And the December 12th rally, there were four stabbings uh, involving the Proud Boys. So they were really ready for a fight by the 12th. But they kept going out to the Washington Monument, to the mall, and praying like they're going to war. And uh, at one point, they say, you know, we're, we're here to stand up for Trump against this stolen election so we can do our work for the next four years. So, yes, they were his army. And we know there were trading messages about also providing protection for at least one congressman, Texas Congressman Ronnie Jackson, who used to be a White House mm-hmm. physician when President Obama was there. It's a bit scary to think about. Kathleen Ballou, we know that based on the Southern Poverty Law Center's uh, numbers, their, stat, their stats, white nationalist hate groups grew 55 percent in the four years that Trump was president. That's according to the SPLC. We know that, e- that since President Obama, um, w- you know, was inaugurated, you had at least four major hate groups that were formed, the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo Boys who've been involved in in some level of violence, um, each of them. Talk a little bit about the connection between the existence of President Obama and the growth of these groups. So one mistake that we have made over and over again from the inception of the white power movement in the late 1970s is to put much more emphasis on the differences between these groups than on viewing this as a broad groundswell of people. So I appreciate the the impulse to sort of sort these out and trace trajectories. Certainly the election of our first black president was a huge factor in recruitment in these groups, as has been COVID, as has been the George Floyd protests and BLM. Um, All of this instability to what some of these folks think of as their traditional way of life has been an enormous soapbox for recruitment. But the headline here is not only the ties between Trump's inner circle and these groups, but their ties with one another. It is through major fact-finding of efforts like the commission that we get the big picture of what's going on. And the historical archive tells, archive tells us that that's likely to be a broad groundswell and possibly one that's not even in command of Trump, even though perhaps he wished it to be, but one that is a guerrilla army that is interested in the overthrow of America. Let me ask you this, because um, the thing that to me separates these groups, particularly the Proud Boys, from previous groups going all the way back, as you said, to the the 1990s, to the Clinton era, is their overt uh, um, participation in politics. The Proud Boys have essentially taken over the Miami-Dade Republican Party. Um, Enrique Tarrio was the president of Latinos for Trump. So there's a, is that unique that these groups are now overtly not just, um, anti-government, uh, violent, but also politically involved and aligned with a political party? That's not new. Um, because we do have precedent there in things like David Duke running for, for president and in state house races. We have other white power, uh, members running for office going back into the seventies and eighties. I think what is new is the very real possibility that they might win this way. The idea that extremist groups could rise to power within our electoral system and slowly move that system away from democratic elections and towards an authoritarian system. Now, here we wanna be thinking about things like um, the BuzzFeed report that came out last fall 
that found that 28 sitting elected officials have donated or have held memberships in the Oath Keepers, which is, just to be clear, a unregulated, illegal private army. Um, We shouldn't say militia. It is not any kind of official body. It is a unregulated, illegal private army. Um, and it is one that has been embraced by some in our in our elected office. And, and Mr. And Wood, you are running for. All, oh, please do. Yes, please do. I just yes, wanted ma'am. to say that a very interesting thing is that after January 6th, um, the Proud Boys, the white supremacists, the Groypers, Nick Fuentes, uh, uh, Patriot Front, which was uh, reconstituted after Charlottesville. I filmed them in Charlottesville. They went into the anti-mandate movement and Mm. they started showing up at these marches. And one thing that I heard that was so chilling, pursuant to what you were saying about the political uh, insinuating, uh, one of them said that they were coming. He said, I just have a message for CNN. He said, we're coming for your school boards. And the next week, the Proud Boys started disrupting the school boards and they had these signs saying uh, something about the Nuremberg codes and they use all this, what I call fear porn. Uh, And so they've just morphed into whatever the next movement is, but they're all the same people, but it's even more dangerous now because they're going into uh, the, the uh, Patriot front was at the March for life and they were recruiting young men asking them if they were against abortion, you know, family values. So that was wow. you know, something to watch out. Yeah, no, it's it, it's so stuff. I mean, Mr. Wood, you are running for office in Missouri, which is a state that is not un, unaccustomed to white nationalist movements, Klan and others. Um, how do you deal with this as a political matter? Because at this point, there is a portion of the Republican base that is aligned with this. Obviously, this group was intending in on January 6th to try to reinstall Donald Trump as president by force. They had a specific Republican agenda and Republicans have been not really excited about tamping them down because they see it as at least a portion of their base. What do you do about that? Well, part of what's so frightening about what's going on in our political system today is that it's some people are accepting it as normal that violence is being glorified in politics. And you can see that in my uh, race for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, where the leading candidate for the Republican nomination, the former governor, Eric Greitens, recently came out with an advertisement in which uh, he knocks down a door, goes in and throws a smoke bomb and is carrying a long gun and says he's going to go rhino hunting, referring to Republicans in name only. So he's glorifying violence against members of his own political party, no less. And so this is very dangerous. And I'm not saying I'm not equating what he's doing to necessarily white nationalism, because I'm not saying it was a racist act, but that advertisement clearly glorifies violence, and that's really wrong and dangerous. And we need leaders who are going to help unite us, not pit us against each other and glorify violence in our political system. And, and Kathleen Ballou, the, you know, this is called fascism generally, right? If, if, when you have a movement um, that is both political and violent um, and also racist and misogynist, because Eric Greitens, I don't know what his racial views are, but he certainly is dangerous to at least the women that have been in his life. Um, allegedly, he denies it, but that is the allegation. You know, how much are we not alarmed enough about the fact that we do have an active fascist movement that's taken hold in our country? That's for you, Kathleen. We are not alarmed enough. There is no level of alarm that is big enough for this moment. We are at a crucible 
And we really, um, you know, there's only so many times we can raise the alarm. People need to take action in their communities. People need to think about how they can confront this problem. It's bigger than the January 6th commission, although it matters very much how we tell this story. This is a problem that is in our schools. It's in our libraries. It's in our communities. It's in our grocery stores. It's at our 4th of July parades. This is everywhere. And this is all of us. And the time is growing short. Uh, amen to that. Um, thank you so much, John Wood, um, Sandy Bacon, and Kathleen Ballou. Thank you all. Up next on The Readout, if Steve Bannon thought that by finally agreeing to testify before the January 6th committee, he could avoid a contempt trial and a possible two-year prison sentence, well, a judge has set him straight on that today. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. It was a bad day in court for America's most infamous pro-Trump podcaster, Steve Bannon. A federal judge would not delay Bannon's contempt of Congress trial and rejected his defense that he thought he was covered by executive privilege. The podcast host, who was at one time an advisor to the former president, but had been nowhere near the White House for years, suddenly and dramatically offered to reverse course and testify to the January 6th committee on the eve of his day in court. The offer was accompanied by a letter from the twice impeached former president rescinding his claim of executive privilege while also totally complaining, completely coincidentally, I'm sure, that the committee isn't presenting anyone to defend his honor. That purported claim of executive privilege is not valid and never was. Even the former president's attorney went to the Mariah, went the Mariah Carey route, I don't know her, confirming in an interview with the FBI last month that the former president never invoked executive privilege over any particular information or materials and provided no basis for Bannon's total noncompliance with the subpoena. Prior to today's hearing, prosecutors pulled no punches, dragging ben, Bannon's change of heart. They called his sudden wish to testify not an effort to fulfill his obligations, but, quote, a last-ditch attempt to avoid accountability. Meanwhile, in his ruling that Bannon's trial can move forward next week, Trump-appointed Judge Carl Nichols ruled out all sorts of novel defenses Bannon wanted to present, including the executive privilege canard, leaving Bannon's attorney asking in court, what is the point of going to trial here if there are no defenses? I mean, come on. Joining me now, Barbara McQuaid, University of Michigan law professor and former U.S. attorney and Kurt Bardella, advisor to the DNC and DCCC. And Barbara, I will not insult you by asking whether or not it is possible for a podcaster to get executive privilege years and years after he left the White House. I'll just move on to what the judge said. Uh, well, actually, Justice Department prosecutor said, well, the defendant's purported desire to testify does not erase his past contempt. By saying he testify, does that have anything to do with helping Bannon out on this contempt charge? 
Now, Joy, I think this is all a gimmick. The Justice Department correctly labeled it as an opportunity and a desire to just try to erase the crime he committed back in October of 2020, uh, 2021, when he refused to testify pursuant to a subpoena. A witness doesn't get to uh, say a week before his trial on criminal contempt is to start, oh, now I'll testify. And this letter from Donald Trump that says he is now uh, waiving executive privilege is, as you said, a made-up defense. He never had a privilege. It, if, if there was one, it wasn't uh, covering uh, Steve Bannon. And even if there were, it would have been outweighed by the committee's interest in investigating January 6th. So this was just a last-ditch effort to feign cooperation in an effort to confuse the jury in his trial next week. And uh, the Justice Department has seen through it. We hope the judge will, too. A gimmick? Steve Bannon? No, say it ain't so. Uh, you know, Kurt, you know this guy. I mean, look, he, Steve Bannon is either like a really good guesser or he's like the Christopher Rufo of arch villains. He's like a Scooby-Doo villain announcing all of his plans publicly before they happen, right? I mean, that's his strategy, right? Like, uh, this is what we're going to do to critical race theory. Let me just tell you what we're doing. Yeah, this is what he did. Let me play this. This is Steve Bannon on January 5th, the day before the insurrection. Here he is on his podcast. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's going to be moving. It's going to be quick. Oh, so which is it, Kurt? You know this guy. Is he a really good guesser or is he the Christopher Rufo of Scooby-Doo villains? Uh, I think it's the latter, Joy. Uh, and it's typical, this arrogance that he exudes, this feeling that he is above the law, that he is smarter than everybody else, that he can outplay the system, they can outmaneuver everybody. And now it's kind of catching up to him here as we see this last ditch, desperate effort to try to pretend like he would cooperate. Listen, it's not just the fact that he ignored the subpoena, that he didn't testify for the last year and a half. It's also he didn't turn over any documents, any emails, all the things that the subpoena would have required. He's not actually going to cooperate. He's never going to cooperate. Steve Bannon's the type of guy, and I think Eric Swalwell put this best last night when he was talking about this. This is someone who interviewed Bannon as part of the impeachment proceedings, and he said, interviewing Steve Bannon is like interviewing the Joker. That's what you're going to get from someone like Steve Bannon. This is someone who will never act in good faith. And anytime he does anything, we should all just be screaming as loud as we can. It's a trap because it usually is. Yeah, he, he, like the Joker, except less interesting. Um, here, th this this guy is so, as you say, Kurt, arrogant. But Barbara, I want to put this to you because between saying all hell is going to break loose and then describing in detail, it's going to be quick. It's going to move this way. This thing is going to happen. It's not going to go like you think it's going to go. He said that on his podcast the day before the insurrection. He then also two nights before reeled back a little bit on the sixth. I mean, he was trying to actually bail Enrique Tarrio on the fourth of January out of jail where Tario had been placed because he had stolen that Black Lives Matter sign. Why would this guy want to bail this particular person, the leader of the Proud Boys, out of jail? And it, it, it kind of makes no sense. And then why would he then turn around and say it's going to all break loose? He may not be the brightest bulb in the fixture, but it does sound like he is a material witness of some kind. Right, Barbara? It does. You know, what happened at that Willard Hotel war room, I think, is really what's crucial now uh, to the January 6th committee and to a Justice Department investigation. One option that the Justice Department has is to convict him at this trial and then mm -hmm. use a grand jury subpoena to make him tell his story at a grand jury. There, they can compel him to testify by either um, serving him with that subpoena. And if he were to invoke his Fifth Amendment right against uh, self-incrimination, they could use uh, use immunity 
to force him to testify. So that's the way they treat mobsters. That's the way they should treat Steve Bannon. Yeah, it seems logical. Let's play um, Representative Zoe Lofgren, uh, who is a member of the January 6th committee, ruling out this ridiculous request for uh, Bannon to go live with the committee. I expect that we will be hearing from him, and there are many questions that we have for him. Would it be a public hearing or would it be behind closed doors? Ordinarily, we do um, depositions. Uh, You know, this goes on for hour after hour after hour. We want to get all our questions answered, and you can't do that in a live format. Gert, what what might Bannon have wanted to do with a live hearing moment? Well, we have no question. If Bannon were to get the form of a live hearing, he would use it to just make a complete mockery of the process. He would use it to attack the committee, try to undermine the credibility of the committee and its members. He would lie. He would do everything he can. Uh, basically, he would turn his committee hearing into one of one of his podcasts, I suspect, uh, which is why uh, Congresswoman Lofgren is so right that that's not going to happen. That's not the way that this works. Everyone knows who works in investigations that you never just throw a witness out there live without having pre-vetted them in the first place. And when you're dealing in with someone like Steve Bannon, you know he's not a good faith actor. You know that he's a liar. You know that, frankly, he is a criminal, if not for the pardon that his benefactor gave him. They're not going to put him out there like that. And by the way, a criminal who literally built Trump supporters with a fake build the wall scam. He built Trump's own fans and they still like him. Uh, Let's do a quick turn here, Barb. Um, Lindsey Graham has now been ordered to testify in front of the Fulton County Special Grand Jury in this Trump election probe. Wow. Um, He must testify on August 2nd. What does that mean? What do you think? Well, you know, like all the rest of us, uh, he is uh, compelled to provide testimony to uh, a prosecutor who is seeking it in uh, uh, with a subpoena. He has no special privileges. He has no special treatment just because he is a senator. A judge has found that he is a material fact witness here because of the calls he made to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. And so I expect he will have to testify. I think he's tried to use some political bluster to get out of it. But uh, I think the law is going to make him show up. Yeah. And Lindsay, sorry, senators, much like podcasters, do not have executive privilege either. You have to testify, buddy. (laughs) Barbara McQuaid, Kurt Bardella, thank you both very much. Still ahead, the Biden administration offers a tiny, tiny glimmer of hope on women's reproductive care as conservatives on the Supreme Court steadily chip away at the once sacred separation of church and state. More on that next. It's been more than two weeks since six religiously conservative Supreme Court justices upended 50 years of precedent and ripped constitutional rights away from American women. Late this afternoon, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services took a dramatic step toward protecting the last vestiges of women's rights. Secretary Javier Becerra issued new guidance to hospitals across the country that under federal law, they must provide abortion services if the life of the mother is at risk, adding that federal law on emergency treatment supersedes state laws barring abortion without exceptions. This is just one small step in the wake of a decision that has plunged the country and the future of reproductive rights into total chaos. Take, for example, Pennsylvania. Late Friday night, the state House and Senate passed a bill that would ask voters to amend the state constitution to declare that there is no right to abortion in Pennsylvania. The bill must pass the legislature in two consecutive sessions before it goes to voters as a referendum. That's right, women of Pennsylvania. They're coming for you, too, if you let them. 
In Virginia, recently elected Republican governor and probable presidential candidate Glenn Youngkin said he was looking into doing the same, telling CBS he thinks he can pass a 15-week ban. On the other end of the spectrum, there were two critical rulings. In Utah, a district judge preliminarily blocked the state's ban on most abortions, siding with Planned Parenthood. And another Minnesota district judge issued a permanent injunction, finding that a number of the state's laws restricting abortion access, including a waiting period, parental notification, violate the state constitution. In New Jersey, the state's attorney general launched a privacy strike force to protect women's personal health data and reproductive rights. In Michigan, more than 750,000 citizens signed a petition that would insert permanent protections into Michigan's constitution for abortion and reproductive health services, including miscarriage management, birth control, and IVF. The petition delivered close to double the amount of signatures that the state requires for ballot initiatives and is the most ever collected in the state. Meanwhile, in Louisiana, where a trigger law that prohibits abortion in nearly all circumstances was reinstated on Friday, a New Orleans gynecologist was unable to prescribe a medicine to a patient because the pharmacy could not be sure that it wasn't being prescribed for an abortion, even though they were assured that it wasn't. The medicine in question is commonly used to facilitate the implantation of IUDs and helps induce labor for women who are pregnant. In Texas, where there's a total ban on abortion, a pregnant woman who was ticketed for driving in an HOV lane suggested that the Supreme Court's decision granted her access to the lane because her fetus was a human being, and therefore she should not be cited for breaking the rules. She is fighting the citation, and well, she should. A Texas House legislator tweeted that he would introduce legislation that would clarify that discrepancy. I wonder how that's going to work. Can any woman just claim that she's pregnant? I mean, how will the cops make sure? Ask for a license, registration, and a positive pregnancy test? Back in Maryland, a French pharmaceutical company is asking the FDA for permission to sell a birth control pill over the counter. Approval could come next year, but the move is sure to anger anti-choice activists who ultimately believe that contraception keeps God's will from happening. A doctor in California is proposing a floating abortion clinic in federal waters off the Gulf of Mexico as a way to maintain abortion access for women in Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Florida, and Alabama. Friends, this is what chaos looks like. Chaos brought to you by Justices Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. On Sunday, President Biden told reporters that he's considering declaring a public health emergency to free up federal resources to promote abortion access, even though the White House has said it doesn't seem like a great option. Let's just be honest. Nothing the White House is considering could or would reinstate the protections once afforded to women under the court's prior Roe v. Wade ruling. You know what makes this even worse? The court's capricious, ahistorical, and dubious legal justification sure does look like a pretty thin cover for an agenda that belongs in Sunday services, not in the highest court in the land. And that is next. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgard, Fgard Tigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgard.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash MOA. Brought to you by Argenix. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? 
With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does. I'm tired of it, are you now? Well, Lauren Boebert may sound like she's preaching from outer space, but comments like those are no longer fringe in the Republican Party. As the New York Times points out, the religious right has long supported conservative causes, but this current wave seeks more. A nation that actively prioritizes their particular set of Christian beliefs and far-right views, and that more openly embraces Christianity as a bedrock identity. And while it may seem new, it is an effort that has been underweight for decades. A former leader of an evangelical group has said that he recruited and coached wealthy volunteers to wine, dine, and entertain conservative Supreme Court justices while pushing conservative positions on abortion, homosexuality, gun restrictions, and other issues. That group became a part of the Liberty Council, whose chairman told Politico that he knows of nothing like that that happened in the past. The group is also facing additional scrutiny after their vice president, Peggy Neenaber, was recorded by a live streamer, self-described as an independent journalist, saying she has prayed with the justices. Oh, you have a church around the court? Can I have your card? It's not really a church or a ministry center, but it's justices. Wow. What does that mean, pray with the justices? The woman speaking did not know she was being recorded at the time. She originally denied to Rolling Stone magazine that she had made those comments. But after their story was published, Nee Neighbor acknowledged her remarks and conceded she has prayed personally with Supreme Court justices. But despite speaking in the present tense on the live stream, Nee Neighbor asserted my comment was referring to past history and not practice of the past several years. The Supreme Court did not respond to a request for comment, and the Liberty Council's founder, Matt Staver, strenuously denied that the in-person ministering to justices that Nee Neighbor bragged about exists. But the influence the group has over the court is undeniable. In the justices' decision overturning Roe v. Wade, the majority cited an amicus brief from the Liberty Council that made the ludicrous argument that abortion supporters have been motivated by a desire to suppress the size of the African-American population. With me now, Ailey Mastal, Justice Correspondent for The Nation, and Robert Jones, President and Founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. It is great to see you both. Robert, um, I, I am familiar with the Liberty Council. They go back a long way to a lot of fights, including over gay marriage and uh, same-sex marriage and abortion and even those monuments uh, in front of uh, federal buildings. How influential are they? And does it surprise you that they may be directly ministering to Supreme Court justices? Well, it it doesn't surprise me. Um, You know, I think we've seen efforts like this uh, and very deliberate efforts, I should say. These are programs stood up to kind of uh, go into this kind of influence. What's really troubling to me is uh, the use of prayer clearly for political influence here. If you think about prayer, you know, there's this adage Uh, I grew up with, uh, the the family that prays together stays together, right? And that's because prayer creates a kind of intimate connection of inviting the divine into a human relationship. 
And it, it basically says we're on God's side together. And it's only a half step from that to saying God's on our side. Right. And I think that's what I find so deeply troubling about this and, 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 and connected to an organization that's also filing uh, amicus briefs with with the Supreme Court. And one, that, as you say, is cited uh, making this uh, uh, kind of outlandish uh, accusation about eugenics being involved in motivating uh, supporters of, of abortions. There's a kind of clear you know, link here. Uh, and, and I think this is uh, deeply troubling. And this connection between the conservative justices here, uh, it certainly makes you, uh, you recoil a bit and think, OK, well, this is really a, this use of public prayer uh, for power and influence in the highest court of the land and unelected positions uh, that are lifetime appointments. You know, and Ellie, it's not all religions that they're talking about, the use of prayer. Lots of different religions pray. But this Supreme Court has seemed to side very specifically with one religion, right-wing Christian religion, not even just regular Christianity, just a very specific kind. And they've ruled for them almost all the time. I think their success rate is something like in, in the 80% range. Pro-religious outcomes in Supreme Court cases under John Roberts, it is 83%. Even under Rehnquist, who was a far-right guy, it was 58%. That is where we are, Ellie. It is not all religion. There are no, there are not a lot of outcomes for Judaism or, you know, for Hinduism. It's all for right-wing Christianity. Yeah, they don't really need to bring in outside groups to pray because they're, the zealots are already on the Supreme Court, right? The call is coming in from inside the House. And if you go back to the Dobbs decision, people need to understand that the premise that life begins at conception is an overtly religious belief. It is a Christian fundamentalist belief. It is not shared by many people of the Jewish faith. It is not shared by many people of the Islamic faith or the Hindu faith or the Buddhist faith or any of these other faiths that make up our country. We have tried doing the new world the way Lauren Bobbert suggests. You know where that got us? To the witch trials. You know what happened? People died. But in this, with this court, we are not far away from that again. We are not far away from one of these Lauren Bobbert, Marjorie Taylor Greene type people saying, I saw Goody Mistal speaking with the devil and helping women across the border. Like that. That is where they are going with all of this. And it's not just Dobbs. It is a slew of cases that they uh, issued last term that pokes holes in the separation of church and state and allows for the government to establish Christian theocracy over all else. And the thing is, is, you know, Robbie, I'm not a lawyer, but even just reading as a layperson the, the the decision that Alito wrote, it's rife with like references to like old sort of Christian barristers and things and, and ideas, that, to, to Ellie's point, that really strike me as very uniquely far right wing Christian ideas, because even like, you know, sort of the mild, you know, Christians don't believe this stuff. And it's, it, it is frightening to think that you do have a court that is making, that is deciding what is constitutional based on their religious beliefs rather than on the law and the constitution. Um, and, and to go, just to go a little further in the politics as well, this is a guy named Doug Mastriano who's running um, for United States Senate uh, right now. And he said this uh, in Pennsylvania, the separation of church and state was a myth. He said in November, we're going to take our state back. My God will make it. So as Mastriano, a Mastriano victory 
uh, at a victory uh, on primary night. He said, if I read articles where you're attacking Christians and painting us as a particular in a particular picture that's hateful or intolerant, we won't have the time of day for you, blah, 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 blah. But he but he agrees with Boebert and they're, and they're saying that there is no separation of church and state, but their church and state. Yeah, you know, that's right. I, you know, I think we're, we're hearing, you know, this kind of quiet part out loud uh, being shouted from the rooftops here. Um, and and it's, we see it in the data, too, in our public opinion data. You know, so, for example, we ask whether people envisioned this country as a promised land for European Christians who could set an example for the rest of the world. Like that very white Christian nationalist idea, ask it that specifically. We have a majority of white evangelicals saying yes. That is the vision of the country uh, that I have. When we ask them about, um, you know, a kind of ideal era in the country, uh, they kind of agree with the court here, uh, the court's conservative majority. They tell us, for example, 70 percent of Republicans, uh, two thirds of of white evangelicals say uh, that things have changed for the worse since the 1950s. Right. And that's really what we have here is this kind of nostalgia fueled gambit to drag the country back uh, 70 years. Right. It's it's before Roe. uh, It's before Brown. Uh, it's before the Civil Rights Act, it's before the Voting Rights Act. It is into the early 1950s. That vision is one that people are telling us on public opinion surveys is one that they actually endorse. And you see it in the opinion, one more point here, that uh, it wasn't just abortion, it wasn't just school prayer that got attacked. It was the right to privacy uh, in the 14th Amendment. And it was the actual underlying premise of the separation of church and state. And in, in its place in both accounts, what, what I, I think is most dangerous is that the support substituted for each of those things, this idea of history and tradition. They explicitly say, and they locate history and tradition in somewhere before the latter part of the 20th century. They explicitly say that in the decision. And that's what yeah, we're really looking at is that that's that's the America um, that that's uh, that's in that, in that vision. Public Religion Research Institute is, to me, the greatest polling institute in the world. But I, I will make one suggestion. Ask about the 1850s, <laughs> because, you know, ask about that, because, you know, to, to Ellie, the, the thing that they're going back to is really the, the 1850s, not the 1950s. I mean, the time that people couldn't have abortions, it was because black women were bearing property and you couldn't abort that because it was a property crime. And black women who were midwives were taking midwifery um, work away from white midwives. And so that was a later era of saying that. So the, even the racial arguments are steeped in a 19th century sort of nostalgia. Um, I, I want to ask you a comment on that, but also just on the upcoming stuff that they've got. They've got affirmative action coming where they're probably going to have Katanji Brown. She probably will recuse because she's a, a good person who's, who sticks up for what she claims she's going to do. But you've got affirmative action, you've got voting rights, you've got the Clean Water Act. All of that is steeped in some Christian lore. Yeah, look, you, the colonizers came with the rod and the Bible and used both um, as they were going around the world subjugating people, right? So this is nothing new in terms of their uh, sectarian ideology, right? Um, the, the problem that you have is that when you set these Christian theocrats upon the court to do one thing, that one thing was to eat Roe v. Wade. It's like an invasive species, right? Once you set them loose, they don't stop feeding just because they got the one thing they were set to do. And so what we're going to see next term is this this court continue to feed on vulnerable people, on minorities, on non-Christians. Look, there's nothing in the Supreme Court decisions that allow a uh, football coach to lead 
uh, students in prayer, lead players in, in prayer that tells me they're going to allow uh, a Muslim school teacher to pray five times a day towards Mecca. Yeah. That's that point about history and tradition. Mm -hmm. It's only kind of white Christian history and tradition that they are, again, trying to impose on the rest of us against our will. And I'm going to note that Clarence Thomas will probably not recuse on the other case that's coming up about whether they can legally do the insurrection. Uh, you shouldn't be able to predict the way a Supreme Court is going to rule based on what right wing Christians poll in Robbie's poll. If, if they like it, they're going to rule for it. But now you can. Ellie Mistal, Robert Jones, thank you both very much. We'll be right back. WNBA star Brittany Griner will be back in a Russian courtroom later this week. Over the weekend, Griner's fellow players paid tribute to her at the WNBA All-Star Game. Every player came out to start the second half wearing jerseys with her name and her number, 42. Griner's presence was felt throughout the night. And selected as an honorary All-Star starter by the WNBA, a league MVP and WMA champion from the Phoenix Mercury, Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle, sat courtside during the game. And that is tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.